Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please open your Bibles, your paper Bibles, to Luke chapter 8. We are officially in the eighth chapter, and in God's providence this morning, we come to perhaps one of the most familiar portions within the gospel, if not within the entire record of Scripture. This is a very well-known parable. In fact, this kicks off the parable section in the gospel. This is a very important passage, and because it contains a message that applies to every single person. In fact, no matter who you are or what you believe, these words of Jesus describe the current state of your heart this morning. There is no person found outside of this passage, and so whether you agree with it or not, the truth of eternity is that you belong right now in one of these categories. This is that famous parable of the sower. In fact, as we're going to see, a much more apt title would be the parable of the soils, The soils, as we'll see, represent various states of the human heart, and so regardless of who you are, this is a passage perfectly describing you. And so before we get into it, let me read these familiar words to you. Again, chapter 8, verses 4 through 15, and here's what Luke records under the inspiration of the Spirit. He writes, and when a large crowd was coming together... And those from the various cities were journeying to him. He spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said to you, It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, this is the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but these have no firm root, so they believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit 
with perseverance. As I said, this is a passage that reveals the state of the human heart. The heart, as many of you know, if you've been in church any length of time, is a descriptive term in the Bible to illustrate that fountain from which all human desire flows. The heart is a term in the Bible that is used to speak of a person's control factory. We'll often reference the heart to speak of emotions, but the Hebrews reference the heart in a very different way. And so whenever you see the idea of the heart appear in the scriptures, it is speaking of that great source from which every desire comes and every decision of your life is made. It is that well that determines the course and the outcome of your life, both now and eternal. And so it is no wonder then why Solomon counsels in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, to watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Safe to say that whatever is in your heart is what you are. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34 that that which proceeds from out of the mouth comes from the heart. That is to say that whatever you utter is always a revelation of what is truly abiding within your heart. And whatever is in your heart is therefore what you are. Jesus picks this up in Matthew chapter 15 and verses 18 through 19 when he says in very revealing terms, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those are what defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slander. These are the things which defile the man. And so he says that it is not something external that corrupts you. Corruption, rather, is something already abiding within you. Corruption that you see on the outside is the result of something eternal, It is the result of the heart. And so one of the things that you know well is that Scripture is brutally honest as to the state of the heart, as to the state of every human's heart. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 says that the heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it is desperately wicked. So who can understand it? That is a rhetorical question with an implied answer of no one. And so that is an indictment on your ability, hear this, it is an indictment on your ability to understand yourself. It is a warning, in fact, against trusting even your own judgments or assuming that you can somehow know or understand or discern your own motivations. Perhaps the greatest deception is to truly believe that you actually understand why you think what you think or why you desire what you desire. In fact, just to give you a list of Scripture's perspective of the natural state of your heart and therefore God's perspective of your heart, here is an inexhaustive list of adjectives that will often accompany statements on the human heart. 
And so see if you agree with Scripture's assessment of you. It will describe your heart, for example, as wicked. It will say that it is sick, perverse, evil, insane, unclean, deceitful, disloyal, errant, unrepentant, unbelieving, blind, deceived, hardened, proud, greedy, foolish, idolatrous, rebellious, perverse, stubborn, and dull. One man said that if your cardiologist needed to describe your physical heart in that way, you would be beyond remedy. Paul will describe the heart in illustrative ways as well. He paints a picture, for example, by drawing upon the Old Testament and stating in Romans chapter 3 that there is none righteous, not even one. And the key with this passage is to observe those very important words of none and all. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. Why? For there is no fear of God before their eyes. And beloved, that is a category describing the heart of every single person in their natural state. That is a description describing you before you were made alive in Jesus Christ. And that is a passage for which there are no exceptions. That is a description of every single one of your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends. They might seem like nice people on the outside, but inside they possess an insidious heart. And why? Well, because it is a heart that has zero fear of the sovereign maker before its eyes. People will often make statements that humans are generally good and generally loving and generally caring. Just look at all the good in the world, all the philanthropy, so on and so forth. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, would have a major disagreement with that sentiment. In fact, the single greatest problem that plagues mankind is that it has far too high a view of its own heart. In many ways, that is what is so wrong with even the church in our day. Many professing Christians have far too low a view of the sin that still remains. In fact, the scriptures speak much as to how mankind consistently underestimates the truly depraved nature of its own heart. In fact, passages such as this are very important for understanding a doctrine known as the doctrine of total depravity, a biblical doctrine which states that every man and woman and child throughout all times and all cultures and all generations are born into their natural state as utterly dead in their sin. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes the state of man before they've been made alive in Jesus Christ. 
And he states in verses one through four that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So, so you weren't sick. You weren't just needing a little bit of help. You weren't just needing a little bit of assistance. You weren't just the product of your upbringing or those various external realities around you, but you were dead. And that is a critical word. You were dead to the things of God. You were dead to any understanding of true righteousness. You were dead in terms of having any kind of ability to please God or choose God or honor him in any way. And so you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived. And how? Well, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. That is to say that we were under God's holy and righteous judgment. That is a description of your natural state. You were by your nature a person under wrath. And that is what you were born into, as Paul says. That is a description, in fact, of the heart of your cute little baby as you hold him in your arms. And because Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that you were not born in Christ, but you were born in where? Adam. Adam is your head. Adam is your representative. And so you dwell in the realm of Adam, which is the realm of sin. It's the realm of being dead to the things of God or possessing any kind of righteous standing before him. And so despite how psychology and sociology constantly try to say that our problems and our issues are behaviors that are learned, God says that this is the natural state into which you were born. And so all of your desires and all of your behaviors and all of your bents are not something that have been forged from the external pressures and realities placed upon you, but are rather the natural product and a result that flow from that which is already in you. External realities may draw out your sin in a specific or peculiar way, but it is drawing out that which already resides within your heart. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 gives what is probably the most comprehensive statement in all of scriptures as to the state of the natural heart. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, in that every intent of the thought, so not just the thoughts, but the intents of the thoughts, that is the motivation and the soup from which your very thoughts are formed. And so every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is an unbelievably comprehensive verdict. In fact, you would do well sometime to take out a pen and paper and meditate upon every word of that verse, that every intent of the thoughts of the heart are only evil continually. I could preach a sermon on every word of that verse. 
And so it is no wonder, therefore, as to why Jeremiah is so wise in saying that you should be very slow and assuming that you know or somehow truly understand the motivations of your heart. You should be very slow to assume that what you think and what you desire and the decisions that you make are in any way pure. Even for those truly in Christ, you still experience the daily effects and hangover of the old man, as Paul says. And so you are still under the residual effects of sin in your life. Still affects your desires, your thoughts, all of your motivations. And so it is a wise person who is skeptical towards their own heart. It is a wise person who understands that they possess a heart of sin. But as far as the world is concerned, apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit, our hearts are completely hardened, and hear this, totally depraved. They are, as Paul says, dead in their sin. They have no capacity in them at all to respond to the person of God. For that is the very definition of deadness. There is no life. There is no ability or capacity to will contrary to the deadness of the heart. And so there is a depth to human depravity that none of us Understand. I have barely scratched the surface as to all that Scripture speaks on this topic. We could spend literally weeks examining both the depth and breadth of the nature of sin and the nature of the heart. But however bad that you think you are or you think people can be, Scripture is very quick to remind us that the heart is still far worse. And so as you talk with people about the gospel... You ought not to be shocked or scratch your head that they are so quick to reject you. It is the natural response of a heart that has no life. Their hearts are wicked. Their hearts are twisted and defiled. Their hearts produce mocking and scoffing. In fact, it's why a person often cannot merely reject the gospel and say, no, thank you, but why they indeed become hostile toward the gospel. Their hearts are self-deceived and desperately unrighteous. In fact, it is also the reason for why so many will seemingly come to Christ and seemingly receive the gospel, and many even seemingly rejoice in the truth of the gospel, but to eventually fall away, to apostatize. There is a level of deception going on in that heart that not even they understand. And so in light of the comprehensive truth regarding the state of the human heart, Jesus here describes for us in this passage four very common responses to the preaching of the gospel that are a product of the state of the heart. And these are the only four responses. And so again, I say to you that every single person in this room and every single person in this world finds himself in some way within this parable. This is a parable about the heart. We can often get frustrated in our evangelism. We can become quickly discouraged in our missional 
efforts, we can become troubled and hurt as we watch a person whom we love abandon the faith and fall away. But this is a passage in many ways that prophesies that such things will happen. And that that will be the majority of what happens because of the hardness of the human heart. And so this is a tremendously important text. There are some critical truths here that our Lord reveals about the nature of the human heart and therefore the role of the gospel. And so as we work through this passage, which will take us two weeks, while it is tempting to be quick to think about other people or think about past experiences that you might have had with other people, I think we would do well to first ask ourselves as to where we might be situated within this parable. This is a parable for you to examine your own heart. It will function as a helpful tool as you interact with people and as you are faithful to the Great Commission, but it is a wise person, hear this, who uses this tool to first examine themselves. For this is a parable for the professing disciple. This is a parable for those who have heard the gospel. And so look with me if you would, starting here in verse 4. Notice Luke states, and when a large crowd was coming together and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. Now, let me take a moment to give you a word here about the nature of parables, because we're now entering into the parable section of the gospel, and parables are perhaps one of the most misunderstood and therefore misapplied events in all of the gospels. And so first of all, many have assumed that Jesus spoke in parables because they think that it was a skilled way for him to teach. They think that Jesus spoke in parables so he could help people better understand his teaching. They see Jesus' parables as a kind of illustration. This was a relatively illiterate culture, and so Jesus would often use cultural or agricultural imagery or common life experiences to better relate to the people. And so many assume that Jesus spoke in parables to make himself clear. They think that that is what made him such an effective teacher. But that is the exact opposite reason for why Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus did not speak in parables to make himself clear or better relate to the people. Rather, he spoke in parables and market to hide the truth. He spoke in parables to hide the truth. In fact, notice in verse 10, immediately after he tells the parable to the crowd, the disciples are curious as to the meaning of the parable, which of course implies that it was not evidently easily understandable and that the parable therefore didn't make anything clear to them. And so he says in verse 10, notice, to you, disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest, it is in parables. And why will so that, so here's the purpose. Anytime you come to the phrase so that in the scriptures, it is always showing purpose or result. And so here's the purpose. Will so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. 
So what is the purpose of parables? Well, on the one hand, they reveal truth to those who have been granted access to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But on the other hand, they're designed to both hide and conceal truth to those who have not been granted access. That seeing they may not see and in hearing they may not understand. In fact, he's recorded as saying that again in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11. And then in chapter 11 of Matthew, he makes another shocking statement after he issues out those woes to those various cities. And remember, the term woe was always a term used by the prophets when they were issuing divine judgment. Nothing good ever followed the declaration of a woe. And so he issues out his woes to these various cities of Israel who will not repent and will not embrace him as the Messiah. But then in verse 25 of chapter 11, he prays these words and he says, and I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Speaking, of course, of the self-righteous and those who are wise in their own eyes. But I praise you that you have revealed them to infants. That is those who are humble and lowly and meek of heart. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. In other words, contrary to very popular opinion, it is apparently well-pleasing to the Father to reveal truth and the mysteries of the kingdom to certain people, but at the same time, actively hide and conceal it from others. And so Jesus spoke in parables to accomplish that very thing. He was on the one hand revealing, but on the other hand, hiding and concealing. That is very important in terms of understanding the nature and purpose of parables. These are not just clever ways of teaching for the purpose of making things clearer or more understandable. The primary purpose is to conceal truth from those who will not understand. And so parables, to give you a more formal definition, are an earthly teaching conveying a heavenly reality. They are an earthly teaching conveying a heavenly reality, and their purpose, again, is to hide that heavenly reality from those who refuse to understand. In fact, you'll notice in verse 4 of chapter 8 of Luke that once again the crowd enters the scene. I've been telling you that the crowd in the gospel of Luke is a formal category that represents those neutral, sort of half-hearted religious people. They're happy to follow Jesus as long as he keeps giving to them what they desire, namely miracles and healing and bread. But by the end of the gospel, the crowd has not only completely abandoned him, but they're also that very same crowd that will shout to crucify him. And so Jesus doesn't have a lot of love for the crowd as A formal category. He is deeply invested and interested in his disciples, but he understands what this crowd is. Crowd is nothing more than a group of religious consumers. The crowd is following Jesus because they want him to function as his their divine genie. They do not see him as Lord. They do not see him as one worthy of worship. Rather, in their minds, Jesus exists for their purpose rather than they for him. 
And so as long as he keeps providing for them what they demand of him, namely healing and health and food and material blessing, then they will keep coming to him. But the moment that he will speak of sin or demand repentance, and the moment that he exhorts them to count the cost because following him will cost them something, and the moment that he preaches that they must die to self, they will abandon him. In the hardness of their heart, they will eventually fall away from following him. And so to these, Jesus has hidden the mysteries of the kingdom. But to his true disciples and those who have left everything, as we saw starting in the beginning of chapter 5, to his true disciples, he explains the meaning of his parable and therefore gives to them access to know the mysteries of the kingdom. In fact, structurally, the way that this passage breaks out is Jesus, first of all, notice, gives the parable to the crowd in verses 5 through 8, where you'll notice that there is no explanation, there is no application. He does not give its meaning. He doesn't try to apply it in any way for them. And then in verses 9 through 10, Jesus reveals the purpose of parables, which again is to reveal on the one hand, but conceal on the other. And so in verses 11 through 15, we then see him explain the parable, but to his disciples alone. Again, he does not explain it to the crowd, rather he explains it to these to whom he has given access to know divine mystery. Verse 10 like notice again in verse 10, it is written in what is known as the passive voice. Remember, if it's, it's written in the active voice, it's something that you yourself are doing. But if it's written in the passive, if a verb is in the passive, it's something that is happening to you. And so here it is in the passive. And so true disciples have been granted passively. They've been granted knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom. And so this is something that is happening to them from an external object. In fact, this is what is known as a divine passive. That is to say that this is something God is doing to them. And so it is God who is making these things known to them. And so what's important to notice about the structure of the passage is that once again, we see how it reveals that Jesus is God. That is, it is again revealing his divinity. And how? Well, because in verses 11 through 15, it is Jesus who reveals the meaning of the parable. And so to be granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom is in the divine passive, and yet Jesus is the one who's about to make it known. And so make no mistake on this, but Jesus is now determining in his heart to hide truth from certain people, but then make it known to others. Namely, these whom he has selected to be his disciples. In fact, the truth about Jesus that is rarely taught and because it is a truth about him that can make people feel uneasy. But what is this? Why would Jesus do this? Up to this point in the gospel, he has not spoken in parables. That has not been the nature of his teaching. But on many, many occasions from here on out, that is exactly what he will do. And so what you should understand about that is that this is a form of judgment. He is now turning his back, if you will, on the nation. 
The nation has refused at this point to listen to him. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the nation, have sought to kill him on several occasions. The crowd is only following him because he's got something temporary to offer, namely miracles and healing and food. But none of them have come to him because they want his message. None of them follow him because they believe that he is the son of God and because he alone can forgive sin. They might be curious as to whether or not he is the Messiah, but if he is the Messiah, their only desire still is for him to bring a national revolution. Remember, they want him to fulfill their expectations of what they think the Messiah is supposed to be, and so they want him to overthrow Rome. They want him to militantly take back the nation from Rome. And so outside of the 12, along with a smaller group, which included these women that we saw from last time and some of these others that we've been seeing from chapters 5 through 7, he has got a very large audience of vague followers, but none of them are following him on his own terms. None of them follow him because they want to know the mysteries of the eternal kingdom. That is to say that none of them desire truth. And that is the issue. In fact, depending on your translation, second half of verse 10 is written in all capital letters. And because Jesus there is quoting from the Old Testament, in fact, he is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. And so any faithful Jew who would have heard him say this would have been utterly shocked. And because they understand what's going on in Isaiah chapter 6, And so in Isaiah chapter 6, God is telling the prophet that he is to go and declare that message of repentance to unrepentant Israel. But as he goes, God also tells him that Israel will not listen to him. Which, of course, begs the question as to, so why would God send him? Why would God tell Isaiah to go and declare a message to a stiff-necked people who God knows will not listen Because as he preaches and as he calls him to repentance, the, the message will function, hear this, to harden the people all the more and will therefore become the evidence for a judicial indictment. You ever notice how when you preach the gospel to somebody who does not want it, it has this way of hardening them even more? That is what the gospel does. That is what divine truth does to people. It will either soften and save those who have ears to hear, or it will harden those who do not want it. In fact, whenever you preach the gospel, it is important to remember that it is never, it is never a neutral event. You are either providing words that will soften and save, or you are providing words that will harden and condemn, but there is zero neutrality. You are giving words that will bring forth life, or you are giving words that will harden and be brought up as testimonial evidence against them in the day of their judgment. And so they will be without excuse. We can become discouraged when... People don't seem to convert at the preaching of the gospel, but understand that your preaching serves a significant purpose in the plan of God. He will use your words either to save or he will use your words as evidence. 
And Jesus understood this. And so as I mentioned last time, you will no longer see him go to the synagogues. You will no longer see him pursue the religious nation. You will no longer see him seek out the crowds. Rather, from this point forward in the gospel, he has set his heart on hiding the truth. This is a hardened, stiff-necked generation that did not want him. And so this is judgment. For Jesus to now turn to speaking in parables is for him to concede to the hardness of their hearts. And he gives a parable now to describe such hearts. He gives a parable to help his disciples assess the various kinds of people that they will interact with. And so this is an analytical tool, if you will, to discern the various responses to the gospel there are many who will hear the gospel. There are many who will hear that, that good news of the kingdom and have it preached to them. But the issue always comes down to the state of the heart. What will they do with that message? That is the question. How will they respond? And so Jesus reveals here that a person's response is always an issue of the heart. Like you will hear nothing in this parable about the sower, that is the evangelist or the one who is communicating the gospel, which is why I think this is actually wrongly labeled the parable of the sower. This is not an issue of evangelistic technique. This is not an issue of how to better cast the seed. This is not a teaching on how to find the right soil. This is not an issue of first learning how to clear the soil so that it can better receive the seed, something known as pre-evangelism. This has nothing to do with the sower. And because there is nothing that you can do by way of word or action to make a heart more receptive. That is not the point of the parable. You will also hear nothing about the seed, where the seed represents the gospel. Or as he says in verse 11, the seed is the word, which in Luke, the word is synonymous with the gospel. And so this is not about different kinds of seed or how to better package the seed. This is not about how to better position the seed to be more effective in penetrating different kinds of soil. This is not about what should accompany the seed or how to fertilize the seed to boost how much it yields. And so again, this has nothing to do with better evangelism. This has nothing to do with how to better package the message. In fact, the moment that you seek to alter or enhance the seed, you render it ineffective. The work of the seed is bound up within the seed. And so we just need to let it loose. And so notice the entire focus is upon the soil. Well, the soil is an illustration of the heart. And so this is about heart conditions. This is a parable revealing four different soils and therefore four common responses to the gospel. And so, Lord willing, this is what we will spend our time looking at this week and the next time I preach. And so we will just begin this parable this morning. And so look with me, if you would, starting here in verse 5, and we will only work to the first half, specifically verses 5 through 8, and the next time we'll dig into the meat of the passage, which is verses 11 through 15. And so we're just going to be introducing 
the imagery here, which sets up the scene and scene, and this will put us in a better place, I think, to understand his explanation and interpretation next time. And so first of all, we come to the first soil, which he describes here as the roadside soil. Verse 5, this is the roadside soil. He says, the sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Now, these people hearing this would have been rather comfortable in understanding the concepts of this parable. In fact, Mark tells us in his record of this account that the crowd here is so large that Jesus actually has to get into a boat with his disciples and pull out into the lake before he starts preaching. In fact, the water would have functioned like an amplification system to project his voice. And so as Jesus begins to teach, it is very likely that the people would have seen farmers doing the very thing in this parable. Little doubt they would have looked out and literally seen sowers sowing along the backdrop. And so in the ancient world, this was a well-known concept. In fact, Israel was an agrarian society, and so again, they would have comprehended this parable rather easily. And so first of all, notice he says that some fell along the roadside. This is not talking about a highway or a byway for traveling. Rather, they actually had these pathways carved within the fields. There were very old, very ancient pathways that had in all likelihood been walked on for generations of farmers. In fact, you'll remember when Jesus was walking through the grain fields with his disciples in chapter 6, he was plucking those heads of grain and they were walking through the fields and so likely they were walking along one of these paths. And so they were very worn paths. The ground would have been very hard and dense from people constantly walking on it, again, probably for generations. And so as the sower would sow his seed, he would walk along these paths that have been walked on for centuries. And so in the illustration, some of the seed here falls on this road. And so the point to understand is that these roads were very dense and dry and sun-baked. And so if you know anything about seeds, they always have a little point on them to penetrate the ground. But in this case, it would have been impossible for the seed to get in. It would have been basically like falling on the equivalent of concrete. It's very hard, very dry and impenetrable. And so Jesus says that when this lands, it just sort of bounces off immediately and then sits on the surface. It never gets in. It never penetrates such a hardened surface. And so what is the result? Well, it simply gets trampled on and the birds can now come and easily snatch it away. And so the seed never had a chance. It never even broke the ground. And so again, this is illustrating some very hardened soil. Second, Jesus then states that some of the seed fell upon the rocky soil, verse 6. Some fell along rocky soil. And so here the seed now actually does penetrate the soil, but because it is so shallow and loose, as soon as something grows up, it withers just as fast. And because it had no moisture, as he says, rocky soil is loose soil, so it can't hold water, it can't hold any substance. And so this is a seed that got into the ground, but there were no nutrients. Everything about it was superficial. Everything about it was shallow. It had nothing to drink. Its roots could not grow deep and hold, and so it could not be sustained. 
And so this is an illustration where the plant withers just as fast as it grows. And then the third kind of seed, he states, is a seed that fell among the thorns. This is the thorny soil, verse 7. This is seed that fell into some dense soil, perhaps. But living within the soil were also weeds and thorns, which, of course, always seem to grow much faster. And so the crop was able to grow for a while, but what killed it were these very aggressive weeds and thorns. And so they choked it out. The plant seemed healthy. It seemed like it was growing. It seemed like it had a solid root system, that it was being fed, that it was being nourished. But as it grew, the pressure and the pains of thorny, prickly weeds would eventually kill it. And so like the second seed, it showed promise for a time, this time even longer, but was eventually choked out. And then the fourth soil is the good soil, verse 8. There is a hopeful end to this parable. It says in verse 8 that the other seed fell into some good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. Now, a good crop in this day was considered to be about seven and a half old. An excellent crop would have been considered about tenfold, and so 100-fold was nearly unheard of. And so this is almost a hyperbolic statement. In fact, in Mark's version, he fills this out a little bit by saying that some produced 30-fold, some 60-fold, and others produced 100-fold. But regardless, the point is that the crop was abundant. That is the clear message that he wants to give. The seed that fell into the good soil will necessarily produce fruit. It has no option. It can't not produce fruit. And again, because it was a function of the soil. The sower was not what mattered. The seed is not what mattered. Rather, the soil is what mattered. And so next time, we're going to take a look at the interpretation of this parable in verses 11 through 15. And so I do hope to draw out some critical things for us. And because no matter how long you've been in a church, this is a passage which has tremendous application for you. And so what I want you to notice this morning, just to close this out, is this comment here by Luke in the second half of verse 8, where he says, and as he, Jesus, said these things, he would call out, saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This was a common rhetorical device that Jesus would often use, and it's written here in the imperfect tense, which means that he would sort of call this out all throughout his teaching. It's a continuous, incomplete action. And so the idea here is that many would hear. In fact, everyone would have heard his words. They all would have heard the parable. They all would have heard any extended teaching that was perhaps connected to this parable. But the idea is that just because you hear, that does not necessitate true understanding. That does not necessitate a true spiritual knowledge in accord to the mysteries of the kingdom. In fact, notice again the end of verse 10 where this is reiterated from this quote from Isaiah. He says, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And so there are many who listen, there are many who hear, 
There are many who believe they understand, but that does not necessarily equal true saving understanding, true saving knowledge. And so Jesus is aware of this, is essentially saying, so I know that you all hear my voice, but very few of you will understand my words. One man comments, this comes across almost as a call where Jesus is asking, so how many of you will seek to know more? How many of you will search for a true spiritual understanding? And what's interesting is that notice only his true disciples ask him to explain the meaning. Crowd does not ask. The religious leaders who were no doubt present were not asking, which of course implies that in their arrogance and in their pride, they assumed they already understood it. And because, after all, it's just a simple parable. They could pretty easily understand the imagery well enough, but the key is that they were not interested in understanding Jesus' meaning. And so only his true disciples desired to know more. Only his disciples evidently had ears to hear and did not assume that they somehow understood And so right away, what I want you to understand about this is that as you preach the gospel, there is nothing that you can say or do to cause a person to want to understand. There is no hidden technique. There is nothing that you can say to make a person interested or cause them to understand the gravity of your message. And because, again, this is not about the sower, is not about the seed. It is not about how you speak the gospel, and it's certainly not about the content of the gospel. Rather, this is about the soil. And so we're going to see this more explicitly next time, but this is a wonderful reminder, I think, to all of us about the nature of bearing true fruit. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23 says, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. If you are faithful to cast the seed and speak the word of God, then that is all that matters. It is the seed, it is the gospel that causes a person to be born again. You can't control the condition of the heart. Rather, all you can do is cast the seed. And some of your seed will land on a hardened path. Some of your seed will land on shallow soil, some of your seed will land on thorny soil, but some of your seed may land on good soil. And so the point of Jesus ultimately to his disciples will be, so just be busy faithfully casting the seed, faithfully broadcast the gospel. Some of you I know desire to bear fruit. You desire to bear much fruit. And so you can be tempted at times to think that somehow this is about your technique. It's about how you say something. This is about some kind of argument that you can marshal. Maybe you think it's about certain personality characteristics that you can better develop to become more convincing. Some of you are discouraged because it can become easy to buy into that lie that this is really just about your own winsomeness, about your own skill, 
about your ability to convince a person. And so perhaps you wonder at times what approach you can adopt to cause yourself to become more fruitful. Might I submit to you that perhaps it has nothing at all to do with your technique and certainly nothing to do with the gospel? Perhaps it simply comes down to you needing to throw more seed. First of all, if you are not casting seed or very minimal seed, then you should not expect fruit. But if you're faithful to cast, then at some point it is bound to land on some good soil bound to land on a heart that the gospel will penetrate. And what's interesting about the parable is notice that there is absolutely zero call here to try and discern what type of soil you're dealing with. Again, no emphasis on the sower. Certainly no call here to change the seed. And so the gospel is the only means of salvation, but the implication of the passage is so just be busy throwing this seed everywhere. Like we certainly have some evangelists in this church. They're not hard to spot. And it is no hidden thing that they just keep seeming to bear fruit. Kind of annoying. And yet as you observe those people, it is no secret that they are utterly relentless in telling everybody. They're just throwing seed all over the place indiscriminately. They don't really care where they are or whom they're talking to. That poor soul is going to get the gospel. And so again, the freeing thing about this passage is that your only job is to cast a seed. You are to refuse to worry about the results and you are to leave the fruit up to God. Seed will always penetrate the good soil. We don't discern the soil. We don't alter the seed. We don't focus on seed casting techniques. Rather, you just need the seed to hit the soil and then leave the results to the sovereign purposes of God. In fact, I love Mark's version of this because he is intentional to talk about how some bear 30-fold, some bear 60-fold, others bear 100-fold. But there is no comment in there that says that the 100-fold person is somehow more faithful or more skilled. Rather, the image is one of the absolute sovereignty of God in bringing forth his own harvest. And so it is not an issue of how much fruit has been produced, but rather the issue is, has fruit been produced? That is the issue. And so the fruit is up to him. The size of the harvest is an issue of his own sovereign determination. The only variable in this parable is the soil. That is what this is about. I talk often with people who can become discouraged that they're not seeing fruit. Again, perhaps you just need to cast more seeds so that, relatively speaking, you have a chance of some seed landing on some good soil. But this is a parable that also states that most of the people that you talk to will not receive your message. Most people that you talk to will possess, indeed, bad soil. And because, notice, three of the four soils are bad soils. And so just proportionately speaking, you're going to have a lot more seed that lands on bad soil rather than good soil, which, of course, also means that if it's ever to find some good soil, then more seed needs to be cast. And because, again, there are so many hardened hearts in this world, 
In fact, the better that you can understand sin and the better that you can understand the state of the human heart, let me just say the fact that the gospel can penetrate any heart will begin to seem like a miracle to you. So next time we're going to dive into this in a more substantial way as we take a look at the interpretation of this parable. So today, again, it was just sort of setting the seed. It was explaining the nature of what parables are. But next time, Lord willing, as we look at these verses, I do hope that you'll be encouraged to see how the nature of the kingdom truly works. This is a very important passage and one that, if understood rightly, has the ability, I think, to give you a unique perspective that I think will keep you from losing heart or running to certain tactics and strategies that have no value. God has designed the gospel to work in a very specific way, and so perhaps more than anything else, our great task is to just get out of the way. Let the seed do the work. For there is great power in the gospel. There is life in the gospel that brings forth life. But the key is to cast enough seed so as to hit some good soil. And so we're going to see that play itself out next time as we take a look at the various hearts that exist in this world. So that is what's to come. And so make sure you come back. Let's pray. And so, Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you always for giving us the opportunity to see what you have said. And this morning, giving us the opportunity to see one of our Lord's very first recorded parables Give us understanding, especially next time as we've entered into the depths of this particular passage. There is so much to say and so much to reflect upon as we begin to see the true meaning and interpretation of such a familiar passage. It is one that is simple, yet profound. It is insightful, yet critical in your design. And so as I prayed last week, I know that the burden of many in this room is to bear eternal fruit that lasts and brings glory to your name. And so again, I ask that you would cause us to become all the more fruitful for the cause of the kingdom. We desire to be used. We desire to see your name praised. So cause our efforts to multiply. Go before us in accomplishing that which you desire for us to accomplish in this city and in our various places of influence. May we be willing to live as a strange people in a strange land, sojourning this world, but always for the purpose of causing your gospel to be made known. That is why you have left us here. So be honored with the lives of these people who are your people. May the obedience of this church be a fragrant aroma before you, especially in a day in which so many who profess the name of Christ have abandoned faithfulness. So may you delight in the obedience of our lives for your glory. And may you delight in the words of praise as we now turn to song. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.